Good afternoon, everybody. This is Christian Thwaites of Brown Janikowski. Uh, welcome to our monthly uh, market update, uh, June June the 8th. Um, and uh, we try to cover some uh, topics today, but the big hot topic of the time is, of course, is inflation. I'm sure you've seen a lot of the comments about whether they're going to be temporary uh, or slightly more permanent. Um, and there's kind of two extreme camps. One is to sort of know it's... Uh, it's extremely temporary and it will you know, go away within a very short space of time. And on the other extreme, there's a lot of flag waving about this is a return to the 1970s where we're gonna have very big inflation, uh, you know, the Fed's sort of out of control. And um, we've seen already the, uh, some increases in the CPI, which should be a big warning to us. Now, of course, the truth never really lies at both at either end, um, but I very much tend towards the position that the Fed and also credibly Janet Yellen has taken, which is that the inflation is probably transitory um, in that we've come from such a period of lockdown that there's inevitability, some supply constraints in the, in the system, and they can be anything from not enough container ships going leaving Los Angeles and going back to China and getting back in time to the semiconductor market, uh, used car market, and there's plenty of other examples where the supply has been um, has been severely disrupted over the last year or so, and it's coming back uh, slow, some um, faster than others for sure. But that that supply imbalance will gradually uh, revert to norm, um, and indeed we'll see inflation uh, level off. Anyway, I'll cover some of that as well. But that's really pretty much the commentary is some version of that every day, whether or not we're got the actual CPI numbers coming in tomorrow or the, the unemployment numbers from Friday or something called the job openings number, which came out today. Nearly everything is in this, uh, under this guise of, um, is, is the inflation transitory or, or something more serious? So let's just kind of go through some of that and kind of figure out where we are, uh, you know, approaching the midpoint in the year. I mean, the economic growth has definitely bounced back. We saw an eight, 9%, 7%, I think, print of GDP uh, in the first quarter, and the second quarter is going to be at least that, 9 or 10%. The first wave of the economic bounce back was very much in goods, which if you, if you think about how people were constrained in their mobility and their spending choices, their spending, spending options, it made sense that a lot of people went out you know, and bought goods, whether it was a Peloton machine or an upgraded router or an upgraded uh, computer. Um, but essentially, most people were, were buying things um, either online or where they could directly, um, and it very much pushed up the, the, the demand for goods uh, and indeed the goods deficit and the trade deficit. But it's turning more and more towards services. The problem with the services is that still many of them are constrained in some way. I mean, restaurants in most part of the countries uh, are not operating at 100% capacity. Uh, people are still concerned about going out for um, you know, the, the big um, service providers, everything from hotels, cinema chains, um, you know, other kind of leisure goods, uh, sports, um, uh, and, uh, and the uh, cruise, cruise uh, industry, which is not even, not even remotely back to where it was. But anyway, the services, I think, will start coming in. You'll get this crossover. It's already happening between people buying goods uh, and people demanding services. The consumer is, is coming back. Now there's a natural hesitancy. It's not really the case where 
the barriers are going to lift and people are going to automatically say, right, I'm back to where I was in February 2020. It's going to take some time to change some behaviors. I mean, even in our county, there are different regulations by store, certainly by county, by, by area. Um, so the consumer is going to take some, some time to kind of get back to normalcy. Yes, they've been locked down. People have been in, uh, you know, working from home. Um, and they're not going to come back in a kind of V-shape back to doing all the things that they used to do. I mean, I'm sure many of you have your own experiences with about postponing vacations, changing vacations. All these follow under the uh, services side, which is a much larger part, a larger part of the economy than the goods side. Um, and that's right, that's my point three. So a lot of these companies may not be ready for demand. They may not be able to find the people or people are more reluctant to come back in the same capacity. Um, or they've just been closed for a while and, and opening up is, is proving difficult. I mean, the good news is, of course, that the daily cases now is down below 10,000. Peak was 300,000, if you remember, just a few months ago. 140 million people vaccinated, 65% of the adult population. Uh, now it varies from state to state. You know, tend to be the Republican states, about 45%, and non-Republican states, uh, a little bit higher. But uh, on average, um, it's, uh, it's about 65% of the adult population. Now, I don't know whether that's enough for herd immunity or not, but it seems to be enough that, you know, people like the CDC are going to gradually going to be reducing their uh, standards and requirements. And that's going to be a huge um, shot in the arm for uh, consumer confidence. The employment is uh, steadily increasing. Uh, remember, we lost 22 million jobs. Roughly, we've got all but about 8 million of those back. Uh, the April jobs numbers when we met a month ago were very disappointing, about 250,000. Uh, and we'd had you know, people expecting more like seven, 800,000. They did recover for the May number, about, about 559,000. But it was kind of like a middle of the road number. Um, and, but so far, we got 65% of the jobs regained. Now, we've done that inside of about 15 months. It took uh, well over three years to regain 65% of the, of the lost jobs back in 2008, where there was practically 36 successive months of job losses. We had three uh, successive months of job losses, albeit very big ones. Um, so um, the, the job number, I think, uh, will, will start, to, start to improve. Um, and uh, uh, I think over the summer, we'll start to see about uh, the, the numbers going up from about 550,000, what we saw last Friday, to, to numbers you know, closer to six or seven. But it will be it will be slow. There will be you know, times where it's not coming back as fast as people like, but you've got a combination of the economy opening and also the unemployment benefits expire. Well, they expire in 25 states uh, next month, but they'll expire for everybody else, the $300 uh, supplement uh, in September. Uh, the Fed is still very much on data watch. I mean, they, um, they do believe that, in, that the employment needs to recover and inflation is still temporary. Um, so they don't expect them to uh, to shift much from that. They'll have to kind of see you know solid prints on inflation to to come off of their their basic view that um, that inflation is temporary and everything we're going to see over the next few months is because of the low base effects. Good. So this is just a a quick visual uh, confirmation that the uh, United States is where we were back in January. Things were looking pretty bleak. We're in the third wave. Uh, but now, of course, we're way down here, and you know this is this is a, a right at the bottom end of the graph, and and everyone else is sort of getting there too. 
this is this is confirmed cases. Obviously, it's not the vaccination side. So, I think the vaccination rates in the United States and to a lesser extent in the United Kingdom are pretty much way ahead of the rest of Europe. And I, I put um, just put these countries just as a sampling. But you can see how well the United States has come down from its peak in in February. So this is soon going to go away, at least temporarily. I'm not. I don't know about second, third strains and things like that, but. But for now, we're at, a, we're at a level where the economy reopening is definitely uh, coming very quickly. And um, the number of cases in the big four states, which represent about 40% of GDP, are obviously seen some, uh, some big, uh, big improvements over the last uh, four to six weeks. In fact, since we met, uh, we were here uh, about a month ago, you can see that uh, you know, Florida, New York um, have actually halved. Texas was pretty low, California was pretty low already. So let's just kind of come to this inflation dilemma. Um, if you're going to get full-blown inflation, I'll leave out hyperinflation for a moment. Hyperinflation is a, is a political issue, not a monetary issue. So if you're talking about hyperinflation, I think you have to use those, that definition very, very carefully. And uh, in, the, in, the, in the 20th century, there are probably four cases of, of hyperinflation. The most recent one was Zimbabwe. Um, even Argentina didn't get it, and that they were having price increases about 80%. And the other ones, interesting enough, the Hungary and, of course, the Weimar Republic. But the hyperinflation, where you're talking about accelerating inflation and going into the thousands of percent, is entirely a political choice. And so it obviously doesn't happen very often. Now, the inflation, which I think people should be thinking about, and I hopefully are, is, um, is the inflation of the type in the 1970s, where you kind of get accelerating inflation going from roughly about 5% in 1970 to a peak of about 20%. And that's obviously a major concern. Now, it's not hyperinflation, but it's, it won't blow the economy apart, but it'll certainly disrupt the economy uh, pretty significantly. So what do you need for full-blown inflation? And by this definition, let's just call it the 1970s type of inflation. Well, you need a central bank that's not really independent. At the time, the Fed was a lot less independent than it is now. It was nominally independent, but there were a couple of um, uh, Federal Reserve governors under Nixon and Carter, which were, uh, as you say, quite malleable in their, um, in their persuasions. It wasn't until Volcker came around until you really got true central bank independence. Um, or they've kind of given up on inflation. They're trying to fight an employment number or a monetary target. You know, they that very rarely happens, but um, that, you know, that, that, that's certainly the case in some parts in Europe, notably the UK. Um, it also helps if you, if you want to have inflation, you have a non-competitive or a closed economy, um, you know, where, where there's a few price makers in the industries and uh, not a lot of you know, outside competition, not a lot of outside competition from tradable goods. Um, also, if you have a high dependency on commodity inputs, I mean, Commodities is certainly a leading indicator of uh, inflation, but just think how less dependent we are on commodities as an economy. I mean, you know, nearly all of the top five, top 10 companies in the S&P 500, you know, whether oil price doubles or not makes no difference to them. They don't use it. Uh, they don't really use many other uh, commodities. I mean, perhaps Apple as a, as, a, as a consumer goods manufacturer has some exposure to some metals and cobalt and you know, lithium perhaps, but, um, but really that's a very, very small part of the, of the final product input. So and in a, back in the 70s, it was a different story, obviously, you know, more, more, much more heavier industry and much more reliant on uh, basic metals, goods, um, as well as, of course, energy uh, commodities. 
if you also want to have pig inflation, it helps to have kind of structural shortages. This typically means where supply is constrained because there isn't enough competition in that particular industry. Um, and again, that was uh, that that was true in the 1970s, for example, where there were <coughs> there was structural shortage in the airline industry, uh, and so the uh, the big companies at that time pretty much had the place to themselves and, and put through a lot of price increases. Now, this is like this is number six is actually the most important one. It's wage pressure. You need you can have a price led uh, inflation. So it's you know, it's, it's the, the underlying prices of the goods are pushing inflation up. But the big one is where the wages put it along. And that means that, you know, as prices go up, uh, workers uh, need uh, you know want to have be compensated in real terms, so they start to ask for real wage increases, um, and that kind of gets you into a spiral where you know the wages increases, the price increases, the wage increases, the price increases. Now this was very big in the 1970s. There was um, there were very powerful unions. Uh, the share of the labour in the kind of in the economy was much higher, but you know in terms of who, who profited, who, whether it was in capital or profits or, uh, or, um, or share owners uh, or, uh, or labor. Labor was know, probably getting 30, 35%, they're down to about 12% today. So that's another way of saying labor is not strong anymore. I mean, outside of a very handful of industries I could barely name, uh, you know, maybe some in the airline, um, you know, the only major unions that, uh, that are strong these days are in the government sector. So you know the wage pressure would have to come from with, with uh, labor having not only a powerful position but a concerted and concentrated and united powerful position, uh, and that just certainly isn't the case right now. So um, so I do think that while we're going to go watch watch wages, I think you need an extraordinary set of circumstances to get wage pressure coming through the economy, uh, and those are the same things, you know, kind of unions, collective bargaining, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then finally, you kind of need a weak currency. It's not so much a problem in the US, but uh, in, in, in parts of Europe, certainly before the Euro and Japan, if you start, if you start seeing your currency weakening, uh, then that's going to be uh, an added problem, especially if you've got import, uh, in, in, import uh, dependency. So um, just to kind of move on, that's what the, it's kind of, the kind of framework, if you're gonna talk about an inflation environment, that's what you need in place. And this is what people are talking about. This was the CPI number which came out a month ago. Now I get another print tomorrow. My guess is it probably looks something like this, you know, about 0.77%. So what people have said is, well, that 0.77% is about 10% annualized. And that's true, it is. And the last time we had that was in 2008. But this also tells you that, that bouts of relatively high monthly inflation. So obviously way back here is one over 1% in the middle of a recession. Um, and even just before the recession, it was uh, in, in at least as high as it, it is today. But you can just see that there's not a trend here. It just kind of, it, it goes up, it eases off. It goes up, it eases off and you get some, and, and these months of increases over here on the right-hand side of 2020, barely get you to what you lost in those three big, three big months there, and perhaps a little bit more. But so it kind of kind of put this into context. You know, you see spikes, especially on a monthly basis all the time. Um, and, you know, even if we compare it over, you know, a long period, we are, uh, we're, we're still not particularly high. So I think that the headline uh, issues are, are, you know, way overblown. 
Um, I said the US has had bouts of inflation, but let's go you know, near 100 years. Uh, in the early 20s, it was out of control. Um, I'll come on to this one in 1944 in a minute. It's kind of unusual. Um, and this is uh, also a, a wartime one. But it, for most people's experience, it's kind of this, where between 71 and 81, you, you, you travel between uh, four and 14%, where, you know, it was, uh, you can see in, in the 74 inflation, it was 12, it dipped down all the way to five, but, and then you know, spiked up and this was the last gasp before Volcker sort of got things in hand. And then uh, since then inflation has barely broken two to 3% over, over the long term. Now the, la the last number that was printed a, a month ago was 4.16% on an annual basis. But I would kind of invite you to look at this graph and say, does that look, you know, scarily different? Uh, we had it, you know, coming, coming into the 07 uh, global financial crisis. Uh, we had very much close to it a year or two after the, uh, after the end of that. Um, so again, these are not unused, especially, especially this is the headline inflation. So it's got the very volatile energy numbers in there as well. So, you know, again, yeah, you'll see headlines. It's the biggest print since, and they'll give you some number a long way back, but then I'd say you know, the US has had plenty of bouts of inflation has recovered from all of them and investments have not really suffered during that time. And this is what I think we're fighting. You know, these, this is the headline inflation and then stripping out the uh, core energy, but it most, also importantly, it's this PCE inflation, which is the two blue numbers, two blue lines, the hashed one and the solid one. This is what the Fed's looking at. Uh, and so right now they're at about 3.5%. Again, they've been that high plenty of times. You know, 2012, Fed didn't really do anything, certainly didn't do anything in 2008, 2006. You go back a little bit, you know, 92, 94. So they, they, there are plenty of times when it pops up for a bit, but it doesn't really stay there. Uh, and I think the Fed is thinking that this is probably a replay of exactly that playbook. So, you know, they're going to be keeping an eye on inflation and, uh, uh, and part of what they're doing is trying, we need to make up for this period where the PCE inflation barely got above one and a half percent, you know, for nearly two years. So part of this is a little bit of catch up, but again, this also has some temporary uh, issue, temporary uh, price changes in there as well. But the point about this chart is that look at this, this is a, you know, nearly 40 years sort of move down towards lower inflation. And if you kind of go before the 1970s, as we just did, you know, you can see that, you know, this is an aberration. We just don't get that kind of uh, inflation sticking around the economy for very long. Um, and interestingly, there have been supply shocks before. This is, uh, this is inflation in the 1942. So there are some parallels here. So what happened was that, um, there were price constraints in the war. Um, obviously, the, you know, a lot of the economy was turned over to the to a war footing. So there were uh, constraints on consumer goods and um, and and on consumption general generally. And there were also huge incentives for saving. Um, we also a time when the country was running big deficits, and then it was also a time where there was this thing called velocity of money, which is essentially how how much a dollar changes hands in the course of a year. If I get a dollar from my employer and don't do anything with it, the velocity is zero. If I spend, spend it, and then uh, someone then goes and spend that dollar on that dollar, you're getting velocity up to four or five times. Uh, and normally the, you know, it's been a relatively good rule of thumb that the more that money turns over, the higher the inflation rate. And velocity is 
quite low right now. It's very high back here. Um, and so what happened, this is when the price of a car between 1945 and 1947 uh, doubled. And uh, that was purely because, uh, you know, the, the, the industries were, you know, moving from being closed, which is the same as being on a war footing. See the analogy today, they were just, they were doing tanks and landing craft, now they're doing cars. So there were few of them around, um, just like, you know, a lot of the um, major industries were closed a year ago. So inflation took off <laughs> uh, and then very quickly subsided and, uh, you know, wages didn't follow and um, there wasn't a big expectation that inflation would continue. So it was a catch up after a period of, uh, of very constrained demand. I think we're more likely the parallels to today, well, they're never completely exact in history. They're more like this than they are in the 1970s, for sure. Um, you know, this is, this is a change from you know, a, a wartime economy with plenty of supply for goods that no people didn't need anymore. You don't need any more B-17s, B-29s, Sherman tanks, and so on. But, but you didn't have enough of what people did want, which was household goods and automobiles and so on and housing. So all that had to kind of move to a new footing and it did. And so, but in the short term, there were a lot more people with money to spend than there were things available. And that very quickly sorted itself out. So that's, we've kind of been there before too. Now on the inflation side, again, so sticking with it, this is another one which where people have, you know, commented, and I think, you know, not unreasonably, this is where the Institute of Supply Management, this ISM, goes to manufacturing companies, to go to service companies. And one of the questions asked is, uh, are you seeing prices increase? Not are you raising prices, but are you seeing prices increase? So if you're you know, running a restaurant, are you seeing the price of your core inputs going up, you know, food, wine, whatever it is, bottled water. If you're a manufacturer, are you seeing the core inputs of your uh, of your business going up. So if you're uh, making tools, it's a cost of steel. And so this has, you know, spiked up quite a bit. So, uh, you know, especially from its lows. I mean, back a year ago, the manufacturers, you know, um, only 35% of them were saying, yes, we're seeing increased prices. Now 88% of them are. Um, doesn't quite work like that, but that's roughly what, but you can see the direction and magnitude. But again, my point is, you've been here before. You get here in times where, um, you know, whether it's in the middle of the recession here or the back end of a recession, a couple of years after, or, you know, right in the middle of it, um, you kind of get these moves, you know, every now and then. Uh, and it can be through a number of reasons, mostly on the, mostly on the supply side. And I think that's, that's what's likely to happen. I just don't think that you know, while, while plenty of companies are not happy about this, um, they're not going to necessarily pass them off into final finished goods prices. Or if they do, it's probably likely to be a one-off. It's not likely to be you know, permanently inflation. So that's one part of the debate. Another one is that, yeah, sure, some of the inflation is very much supply COVID-19 related. This is lumber, which you've probably seen. Uh, this is the reason housing stalled out a bit because the lumber prices just skyrocketed. I've talked about this before. This was a direct result of the tariffs going in on Canada on Canadian lumber. Uh, you know, it takes seven, eight years to grow a tree to the point where it's harvestable as lumber. So you can't just sort of replace the, uh, the constraints and supply overnight. But also a very big point was that the lumber mills uh, were very skittish about, you know, putting a lot of uh, capacity and workers online, you know, after the GFC, because they got so badly burnt. 
so they were kind of slow to do that in this period, 10, 2010 to 20, 2019. And obviously they closed down a lot in 2020. So some of it's coming back online and some of it is just the, uh, the, the fact that in lumber, because of the import constraints and things like that, you know, went up uh, and there was a huge supply from housing. So, you know, if, you've, if you're a house building and you've contracted to buy, to build seven units on a street, uh, you know, that takes a long process and you need that lumber and you're gonna pay for it, whether it's $800 or $1,600, you know, it's, you're too far down the line to, you know, give up and say, we'll postpone this. So you know, the demand for new housing, you know, was, uh, was quite robust in 2020. Um, so I think, again, this is something which will eventually sort itself out. Another one is copper, you know, same issue here. Uh, you know, this, this whole area here was China going bonkers on infrastructure and buying, uh, buying copper, a lot of recession periods in here. Um, but that, that too, uh, you know, copper supply, uh, you know, adapted to this, this kind of price level where there wasn't a huge demand for it. You can remember, remember US economy for most of this period never grew much more than 2%. Uh, and then the event now, now it's sort of, you know, coming back and guess what, the, the guys who are providing the, the copper and the supplies are, are being caught short a little bit. Copper is not in short supply in the world. It just you know, takes time to, to open up a new mine and go get it. Um, but you can again see this kind of short term spike in, in, uh, in, in, in demand. Um, and sure, some, some uh, price prices after openings have uh, have increased. So uh, the this is just an index of you know here here's the uh, black line which is the current truck rental. This is a weird market because this is this is basically um, companies like Hertz last year who were in financial trouble anyway. They were leveraged up to the eyeballs, held by a private equity firm, had gone public with a heck of a lot of debt. Um, suddenly found they weren't they weren't operational, so they started to sell their car rental fleet, which is why we saw used car prices dip. Now they're back in business. Uh, now they're not under any constraints to moderate prices if they don't have to. So, you know, I've heard some bad scare stories about uh, car rentals prices, which have just, uh, you know, skyrocketed. I think in the island of Hawaii, someone told me that they're in the hundreds of dollars a day. So these are companies which, uh, you know, no one's going to put up with that for long. It's just, you know, you, you make your vacation. Uh, you know, bankruptable uh, event. So, so eventually that will kind of come into balance. But in the meantime, you know, people are slightly more on the move than they were. They're moving from a dead stop to gradually increasing. I mean, airlines are up to about 75% of the capacity they were pre-COVID. So you can sort of track the car rental markets sort of somewhat similar to that. And they've been able to jack up their prices. Uh, and then the used car prices, you can see that green line they they'd generally been trending down, uh, you know. So uh, a used car price, you know, if it was 100 back in 2001, it got as low as 80 in 2009, and about 85. So it was a uh, 90. So it was, it was a deflationary product. Well, look at that jump from about 90 to 105. That's the that's the demand for used cars uh, taking off last year. Again, that's people moving. Um, the fact that the new, car, the new car market closed down for about two or three months, uh, and that's people sort of, you know, uh, you know um, just generally trading up. They probably need, you know, bigger cars because they're, they're uh, having to do more, you know, at, at home, or they need a second car. So that's, that's why the used car 
market uh, took off. And used cars are much more prone to inflation than new cars because it's a finite good. There's only so many new cars around. If there's a big demand for them, they've got to come from an existing pool. Whereas if, if demand went up a lot on new cars, the car manufacturers will just increase their volume. So I don't think that's going to be you know, a major a major problem. And the final one, you can see the blue line is the airline fares, which are lower, which are higher than they were. You can see they just plummeted. Uh, they're probably going to get closer to what they used to be, which was, you know, roughly they increased about two or three percent, but they're not there yet. And this is very much as the economic theory would have it. You know, I've, I've written about this in the blog about, you know, two components of inflation, things that are sticky and things which are um, uh, not sticky, not flexible. So the sticky price inflation is everything to do with gas. You know, you can see the gas station prices might change their prices two or three times a week. Um, and that, whereas uh, the, the, the things that don't change very often are, um, you know, contracts or insurance contracts and things like that. Or uh, the famous one is the coin operated laundry. It takes a long, it's a long time to sort of reconfigure the coins to accept, uh, you know, a higher number, a higher number of coins. Um, so this is very much as economic, what we just showed you was exactly as the economic would say. The, 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 the products like energy related and some fresh fruit will go up uh, because they can, because they can change prices much more often. Whereas the, the, um, the, 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 the blue one, the more sticky prices is just sort of, you know, going along and pretty much what it always has been. So uh, again, I think we have to wait for this. If the blue line starts creeping up, you know, and again, it has in the past, then that's a bit more of a concern, but at the moment, it's just not there. Uh, house prices, uh, now this is this is the house price inflation um, and, and the, how you measure it in the CPI with the owner's equivalent rent. And it's because uh, there's a shortage of houses. The, 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 the US has never got back to the supply level of houses that it did in 2008. And as a portion of the population, it's, it's very, very low. So the number of new houses per working person has declined enormously. Um, now you can put this down to house builders being skittish. Um, it could be also because certainly around California, it's very difficult to you know, get the permits to buy new houses, build new houses. Uh, but basically, the, and, and people are living longer in their houses. So the used, even the used uh, existing house market, home market isn't, isn't growing very robustly. People are staying longer. They might have in the period, prior period died earlier, or they might have moved into a nursing home or something like that. They're staying in their houses for longer. So uh, the supply level on the housing side is, is, pretty, is pretty bad. And that's why the, uh, you know, the new residential sales have, have popped up and there's definitely you know, some house price inflation. Now, I think it'll start to go down because I think it's taken the first wave of, of demand and we're also seeing higher mortgage rates. Um, yeah, so just on the, on the housing prices, this is the index of the you know, home prices uh, starting in 1975. So they've gone up by a factor of 10 um, and in real terms, you know, almost doubled. So. You know, housing is a relatively good bet against inflation, not as good as the S&P. Uh, this, is, this is what housing would have done. This is uh, inflation, this is the S&P and it's price only. If we included total return, it'd be off the charts. It'd be like another, another four or 500. So, you know, just remember that if we do get, uh, if we do get sort of any increase in inflation, it's toxin to be quite a good protector against that.
Yeah, also sort of went back to the 1970s. And, um, you know, unfortunately, the Case Shiller stuff doesn't only goes back to 1975. But there are plenty of industries. If we get into a period, now, I don't really believe that we're going to see a big inflationary time. But if we did, it doesn't mean you kind of give up on investing. I mean, there's two extremes. If you get, if you go into property and real estate, you'll probably do quite well because, uh, because you get an inflation indexed uh, rental uh, income. Um, uh, and also you don't want to be in long-term uh, uh, treasury bonds because uh, they've obviously got a fixed coupon in inflationary terms that's probably not the best thing to have. So you've got between that, you've got all sorts of opportunities and choices. I mean, here I've just thrown up the, uh, the here's obviously the big one, the energy because you know, went up by a factor of you know, 18 times, whereas the S&P went only up about uh, you know, one and a half times. Uh, and didn't keep up with inflation, but uh, certainly commodities did and all these other sectors as well. Property, materials, agricultural stocks, food stocks, some retailers and tech. So, you know, there's, there's not, this is not a case of if we see inflationary times, we have to get out of the stock markets. It's if we see inflationary times, we have to be more careful about what sectors we invest in the stock market. Um, We've also seen some, some with some wage increases, but again, these are this, I put the wage increases year on year on the leisure and hospitality uh, and the retail trade and transportation and warehousing. So leisure and hospitality, we know uh, that used to be a 16 million people industry. Now it, it went to 12, back up to 14. Uh, transportation, obviously, um, things like um, trucking and so on have been in high demand, not a lot of truckers. Uh, that's not a job which people have been signing up for. So some of the wages have increased in those. But again, I have a hard time seeing this as being uh, a lot of uh, wage push inflation. You know, so uh, the hourly earnings of retail trade, yeah, they're up 4.7 year over year. Um, but you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of noise in here because people um, fell out of that market. So the people that were left looked like they had pay increases. They hadn't, but. Uh, but now you've got more people coming back into the retail market. And so some of the wage increases have been a little higher than the average. But again, I, I would say this is, you know, we're not, we're not going to see this kind of take off because normally this is an industry where there's plenty of labor around. Um, and, you know, the wage increases are usually lower than they are for the average. So again, probably only temporary. And this is the big one, the employment costs. Uh, now, these only come out quarterly, whereas the average hourly earnings come out monthly. And see what's happened there. The average hourly earnings, we've talked about this, uh, you know, we're up about uh, 8% year on year early last year, but that does not mean that people got an 8% pay increase. That just means that uh, people at the bottom strata dropped out of the market, which meant that the people remaining had uh, looked like they would uh, had, had pay increases. And it's the reverse now. As we get more people coming in, returning to market at the lower ends, at the lower paid jobs, it looks like uh, they're coming into the workforce and it looks like they're dragging down wages for everybody. So that's a bit of a misleading number, but you know, 1.98% is nothing to worry about. And this is what the employers are paying, 2.7. So again, until that number starts moving, um, back here, you know, we saw it at three and a half and we got absolutely no inflation in all this time. So you've got to be careful that even some of these things don't translate into higher core inflation. The unemployment numbers, we mentioned those briefly, they are coming back. Uh, the black line is really the, the, the best indicator of underemployment. The headline unemployment numbers has you know, halved from about 14 to 5 um, uh, and steadily decreasing. But this is the number which really tells you 
much much better how much slack there is in the economy and that hasn't dropped nearly as fast. Uh, so it's about 10 or 11 percent or right, people are either not employed or not working as much as they would like. They'll start to they'll start to recover. Um, jobs are out there. We saw the job openings number today. Now they're a month behind. So these are April numbers, not May numbers. But it's interesting. There's about 9.2 million job openings. There's about 9.3 million people unemployed. So theoretically, down in this ratio, you've got a you've got a, a job opening for every person who's unemployed. It was also about one before the before the um, pandemic. But the numbers were much lower. There's about two and a half million job openings, about two and a half million people unemployed. So at this higher level, it still shows that there are job openings. And so eventually those people who are uh, unemployed should find their way into the job openings. But it's not a direct match. It doesn't mean that you have, you know, you're unemployed and you have a job opening just down the street. It might be in an industry which you're not skilled in or in a place you can't get to. So eventually this will kind of get back into balance. But the demand for labor is out there. If we didn't see, if we saw no demand for labor, then this, then this recession would be going on a much longer, but, but, the, but the demand for labor is certainly up there. Um, that's another one just showing the wage, wage trackers. This is the Atlanta Fed goes out and uh, does a three month moving average where converted a three month moving average on wage track. There's nothing there, nothing to see. I mean, the wages were sort of gradually increasing up here as the economy came back. This, this recession was so long and so wide and so deep that it took a heck of a long time and it took the best part of 10 years to get back to where it was this one is much sharp shorter and uh, and deeper um the 10-year rate uh you know last time we talked earlier in this year we could see 10-year rates picking up from about one percent to one and a half one it's essentially been flat the last uh, uh almost month and a half um and again i think it's the treasury market not quite sure you know, if and when the Fed's going to cut, most people think it's not till they'll start. They might talk about uh, backing off on easing later on this year and do a cut in 2022. I think that's the kind of market consensus that makes total sense. Uh, but the market in the 10 year treasury, which is very inflation sensitive, you know, hasn't moved up. Uh, and I think this kind of you know, range of 150 to 170 is pretty much what we're going to see for a few months. I know I'm might be uh, pushing my uh, pushing my time limits here, uh, so I want to just uh, move on to the stop. Well, I'll talk about this one very quickly because there is a uh, you know right now inflation uh, uh, treasury inflation treasury uh, rates are negative. So you know we have 1.5 percent and we've got a headline rate of three percent. So guess what? You know you don't make any money if you're measuring against the CPI uh, by holding treasuries, they're not creating a real rate of return. It's one reason why we backed off the treasury market recently. Um, but, 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 you know, negative rates pop in and out. Um, back here, they were a giveaway. This is where you wanted to be a, lend a borrower, not a lender. Uh, but this is where you went out and bought as much of, you know, a house as you possibly could because you were, you were getting negative rates of uh, 5%. You could not help but make money in the property and, and real estate market. And then it was the same here in 79.80. Then inflation dipped down, rates went skyrocketing. So real rates were you know, very much a thing for the best part of uh, 35 years. Then they started to dip down in, in, uh, in, in this period where occasionally rates were popping up, inflation was low, you've got a positive rate and so on. You can see this kind of you know, inverted W up here. Right now, I think that they're, sort of, yes, they're negative, probably not a great time to lock into a 10-year treasury rate at 1.5% while you're at 3% inflation. Um, but I don't think they're going to sort of, you know, head on down. 
that would require the the ten-year Treasury to be completely oblivious to the to the inflation rate, which does start accelerating, and I really don't think that's going to happen. So again, we're kind of going through these concerning times, but I, I looking ahead, I don't think uh, I don't think they're going to be permanent. Treasury rate, Treasury bond at one point five percent, no bargain, uh, and it but it would be if it, if we got into a deflationary time. Um, but we've got to kind of get this inflation uh, um, hump, uh, get it through the other side of it. A good thing on the market, this is the equal weighted. So this is versus the S&P 500. So the S&P 500 uh, obviously was doing really well in 2020, uh, 2020 with the, with, led by the large caps, which um, you know, had about 10, 15 stocks for 30% of the market. Uh, now it's broadened out much better. And this is the average uh, so the average uh, stock has gone up um, you know, since this period about you know 42%. So this is much better. It means that here, you know, Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, those guys, instead of being 30% of the market, they're only about 2% of the index. So, um, uh, so, so this is a much better indicator of how broad the recovery is. So when you see the equal weight outperform the cap weight, it means that the the kind of benefits or the uh, you know the the the, the the breadth of the bull market is 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 much better. So it's not just you know accruing to one or two leading companies. So that's been a very good story to have. Um, they come back to the is the market expensive? Yeah, it's expensive. I mean, it's very difficult to sort of come out and say this is a, a bargain. Now it briefly was last April May, uh, and it you know has been at other times uh, during corrections, but these openings haven't left haven't been open for very long. Um, and it was a huge bargain back in uh, 09. So right now you do have companies, the average S&P company makes a 20% return on equity, which is incredible. In a period of, of low inflation, you stick that number on the average Japanese company or the average German company, the average French company, it's gonna be less than half of that. So, you know, American enterprises, because of the mix of the industries they have, you know, better run, pick your, pick your reason. But, uh, but you know, twenty percent ROE is uh, is pretty astounding, and you know, they've come from a incredibly low level about a year ago. Uh, the enterprise value EBITDA, which takes away some of the accounting anomalies that you get with price earnings ratio, again, no particular bargain. Uh, a little bit less than they were in the middle of last year, higher than they were for this day, decade. Um, but they're not screaming off the roof. They're not, you know, they're not like they were. Just take this back; the number just goes off the chart for two thousand. Uh, 1999 and so on, and companies are generating plenty of plenty of cash. So these these have been quite good. But yeah, I mean, I think of the S and P 500 as an extraordinarily good financial health, business health, margins, demand is strong, so the prices are not uh, as as cheap as we would like them to be. So uh, you know, we're kind of a stay put market rather than uh, fill your boots. Um, and this is one other um, variation we use on the valuations. There are so many ways to value the stock market. I mean, literally hundreds. There isn't a single one which will give you, you know, a, an answer. Although the cyclically adjusted price of, price earnings ratio from from Shiller is pretty good, but um, none of them really tell you much about timing or how long the over the over valuation is going to happen or where you are in the bargain uh, rich cycle. But this is pretty good. It just tells you the earnings yield, um, less the 10-year bond. And you can see we're at about 3%. Ah, it's not too much different from what it was for about six or seven years. 
it's uh, the lower this number, the more expensive the stock market is. So again, huge bargains to be had in 08, huge bargains at the end of 2011, briefly last year, um, cheaper than it was for most of this decade for sure. So um, those, are, those are some of the things we're looking at. So anyway, we are on reopening uh, track. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I said this before, it sounds like I've kind of moved it a month forward every time we've met, but I do think we're, you know, gradually reopening. I think where we made a, you know, a forecasting error, not that it really mattered from an portfolio perspective, but we thought the opening up would be faster and quicker and more immediate than it has been and kind of underestimated the caution that people have in getting back to work. And also, you know, for employers, I mean, as you know, schools have been slow to come back fully online and even some of the ones which are opening up in September are doing the conditions attached. So the reopening is sort of, you know, is happening. Um, consumers ready to spend. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we can't really open up the economy as quickly as we shut it. Uh, so I think, you know, gradually as things open up, you know, we'll see more of this pent up demand uh, coming through into the final economy. The Fed's going to wait till they see the whites of their eyes of inflation. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure about this. I mean, 100% sure? No, but I'm not 100% sure about anything. <laughs> but um, but I'm very sure that the, uh, the the Fed will wait until they start seeing um, inflation numbers. They won't go on expectations. They won't go on University of Michigan consumer confidence surveys. They won't go on ISM and they won't go on the NFID, which is out today. Uh, they'll go for, is it hitting these types of prices and goods in a consistent way? Um, and, and can they kind of can they distinguish between the transitory and the temporary and the permanent? That's a tricky thing, but I still think uh, they'll 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 wait till the actual numbers come through, and they'll be definitely tracking wages. And there's not much for them to track right now. The wages are not really showing any big uptick. Labor supply will come back. These stories about people not coming back to work because they're on unemployment benefit are, are pure nonsense. There's pure there's plenty of supply coming back. I think the major reason. Uh, that people have not come back is because the jobs aren't, uh, uh, are, are not easily locatable. Public transport is still running way below its normal capacity. Child and healthcare and home care is not uh, where it needs to be. So you know, this will take a while to get back, get back into balance. Uh, by the way, the Fed, just so you know, they are not going to cut rates first. It's the last thing they're going to do. First thing they're going to do is stop reinvesting the coupons from the you know, four or five trillion dollar um, asset portfolio, which they have in mortgage-backed securities and treasuries. They've been reinvesting those into the market in addition to the 120 billion, which, which they're buying. They'll stop that first, then they'll taper the 120, be a number lower, uh, and then they'll cut rates. So there's kind of very much a three, at least a three-step uh, phase before they actually get to a rate cut area. And the market still has some bubbles. I mean, I, I wouldn't go buying electric vehicle stocks right now. I think some of the SPACs have gone crazy. Um, Crypto, obviously an area which is incredibly volatile and shows that there's still a lot of money there. Some of the uh, more you know, pandemic related stocks, um, you know, that are not actually making money. So the Zooms, the DoorDashes and Ubers and things like that, you know, have uh, probably looked very rich and, uh, and some, you know, bubble territory. And then obviously the meme stocks, you know, AMC and GameStop, you know, I've, I've written about that. It, it, it it makes sense in a bizarre way, but obviously not something you want to tangle with because when that market goes into reverse, it'll hit with a big thud. Um, but otherwise, I think the general market is uh, is is generally uh, in, in relatively good shape. Gosh, I've gone way over. So let me make sure that um, we, we might have some questions here. Um, 
Uh, maybe not. Um, yeah. Uh, hi, Christian. This is Carolyn. Just check the Q and A. We have three questions waiting for you. Okay. Uh, I'm on the wrong thing. Hang on. Uh, Q&A, there we go. Okay, sorry about that. Um, many people are scratching their heads about the don't worry about inflation talk because they're experiencing real hidden inflation driven by soaring costs of healthcare, education, housing, even with lower rates. This is real cash out of pockets. What would you say to them? <clears throat> I would say, you know, you, you can't not worry about inflation because there's inflation from the policy rate, you know, which is the CPI and the PCE. And then there's the inflation which you actually live. So, you know, uh, for, for people in, uh, you know, healthcare or rely on a lot of healthcare outside of an employer plan, it's it's going to be a number that's higher, higher than inflation. Um, education, I mean, certainly, you know, college, uh, private uh, education seems to be it's on its own track of, you know, being almost doubled the rate of CPI. Housing, I think, will ease off. <clears throat> um, the, the rates, uh, the mortgage rates uh, bottomed out about four or five months ago. Um, and I think, you know, some now the, you know, the prices have, have moved too fast, too quickly. So I think those will, will level out. Although I know that, you know, especially in Marin, uh, sorry, Bay Area, you know, it, it's kind of a market all of its own. That's because the, the state of California basically keeps, a, keeps the supply side absolutely throttled up so that, so that the, the supply never gets a chance to meet demand. So I'd say that, uh, yeah, in individual cases, you're, you're going to see inflation depending on your type of living. But I think, um, but I think you know, for the economy as a whole, it's going to be this, this spike up for the next few months. And then it'll eventually sort of you know, come, back, come back into, uh, into a much more moderate number. The two and three percent we've seen mostly for the last 30 years. Given the 10-year yield outlook, tight spreads in credit, what's in strategy is B&G recommended for income investors or investors who need ballast? Yeah, you're right. Treasuries at one and a half percent. Right now, there's a, I know the high yield market's very, very tight, about 4%. For those of you who don't follow, who don't follow this, that means basically that a high yield bond, which, means a, which, is, which is a junk, which is, it means it's got very bad financials. You know, pay about 4% more than a, than a, than a US Treasury. And the normal spread's been more like seven or eight. So, uh, you know, that, that's something which if you grab onto, it's gonna give you a pretty wild ride. Um, so I think one of the things that we're looking at, we can, we've been investing for a while, is there's still some good you know, corporate credit. It's not gonna be huge numbers, but there's gonna be very good uh, borrowers and, and you know, they're, they're quite expensive, but they're not, uh, they're not, uh, out of, the, out of this world. But one of the things that we're, we have been doing for about nine months now is going into various parts of the real estate. No, not office real estate, but, uh, but other specialist parts of the real estate market where you get a very, very modest capital appreciation. A lot of these businesses, just, a lot of these uh, properties simply don't transact, so they don't have very good comps, or if they use a comp, they use a discounted cash flow system. But um, but certainly we've, we've, uh, we've, we've liked some of the rents and rent increases that we've seen on that. So, you know, we particularly like companies or types of properties, real estate, where the uh, rental lease agreements are reset pretty often. So offices, it's like seven or eight years with housing, so yearly um, and, you know, industrial and medical and stuff like that is somewhere in between. So, so those are 
those are pretty good um, uh, uh, income vehicles, um, and there shouldn't be much uh, capital uh, capital volatility. And so what's your view on real estate? Oh, there we go. Okay, so I kind of <laughs> um, I, I don't see real estate as geographic. I see it more as a sector. So uh, I think you know we we push this idea around here a lot. We like the senior housing. We like the student housing. Which I, go into it another day if you want, but um, uh, industrial for sure, because these, you know, the, when you used to used to press a button to get your stuff in three days and then two days and then one day and then same day and then before you even thought about it, you need it. What happens is that the chain, logistics chain gets more complicated and the number of uh, warehousing uh, um, uh, uh, spaces multiplies exponentially. I mean, literally in the old days, those of you who've been have driven across country, somewhere in the middle of Omaha, there's a huge uh, JB Hunt, FedEx, UPS, you know, terminal. I don't know how to describe it. It's as big as, uh, big as an airport uh, with just you know, logistics coming in from both sides of the country and being fed off to, um, you know, to where it needs to go. Well, now, you know, with the kind of more spot delivery, uh, those warehouses are getting more smaller, but they're getting more specialized and they're nearer to the uh, you know, to the end consumer. So it's if, you, if you're moving furniture around the country, you need, I don't know, three warehouses. If you're moving fresh food around the country, you probably need like six or seven. So uh, so that's been a good sector for us to be in. So has data storage, which is just basically a cloud computing play, but kind of interesting. Um, and uh, I don't know if Rita's on the line, but anyway, so there are some sectors that we think have done, done uh, pretty well. I mean, nothing's I mean, they're not soaring. These aren't sort of big bubbles, but I think they're very predictable and pretty good, pretty good sectors uh, generally. Uh, geographically, my only my only sort of broad hint would be not particularly original is the southeast tending to outperform everywhere else. Um, see, as the population got the population growth on their side. Um, good. So I hope I haven't kind of rushed through those too uh, too quickly. I really appreciate everyone's patience, um, and uh, the slides will be available up on the up on the website and uh, thanks very much and any other questions that you have feel free to send us an email or to the general number or your financial advisor um, and uh, we'll see you next month thank you very much should i read the uh, disclosure sure go ahead christian my recording isn't quite working Oh gosh, I get to read the disclosure. Lucky you. Lucky me. Here we go. Okay. How many people are leaving us right now? Um, here we go. Discussions of the investments, investment strategy, research, investment process of Brown Janikowski are of the date indicated of the date of this presentation, subject to change without notice. Chances illustrated throughout this presentation may be updated periodically. We have no obligation to provide revised assessments in the event of change circumstances. We cannot assure that the type of investments mentioned in this presentation produce the intended result. Or outperform other investments in the future. We reserve the right to change our investment perspective and outlook without notice as market conditions dictate. As additional information becomes available, diversification does not protect an asset. Investor from market risk does not ensure profit. If the information is subject to unintentional errors, submissions, and changes without notice, all sources are from facts that must otherwise noted. While we gather this information from sources we believe to be reliable, we cannot guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any statements or numerical data in this presentation. References to individual securities should not be considered as a recommendation to buy or sell that security. Securities noted in this presentation are only several of the successful and unsuccessful investments by Brown John Nikosky. Don't represent all the securities we have purchased, sold or recommended. Inex returns include reinvested dividends and interest, but do not reflect commissions or transaction costs. 
Mutual fund returns include reinvested dividends, capital gains. Mutual fund returns are net of the fund's expensive. They do not reflect Mark Brown Janikowski's fees. Please read the prospectus carefully before investing or sending money. Past performance, no guarantee of future results. We may reference various hypothetical investment illustrations. These for illustration purposes only. Not investment reductions do not guarantee indication of future results.